our panellists will be talking about some of the biggest stories of the past year. We're talking political scandals, crime and justice and sporting falls from grace. They will share their experiences on how they covered these stories. Our lovely moderator, Claire Harvey, will introduce tonight's panellists, Chris Barrett, Shari Markson and Karen meldrum Hannah. Claire Harvey is the deputy editor of the Sunday Telegraph, Australia's biggest selling newspaper, where she also writes a column. Claire started her career at The Australian in 1994 as a copy girl. She worked at The Australian for a decade, covering various rounds, including politics and spending three years as the New Zealand correspondent, where she also covered the Pacific Islands, before working for two years as a senior writer and columnist at the New Zealand Herald. In 2008, she returned to Australia as the senior writer and columnist for the Sunday Telegraph before becoming the deputy editor in 2012. Please welcome Claire and the panel. These talks are great. We love having a lively audience to hear about journalism and, and really hear about journalism. So I'm going to start by very briefly introducing these three and then asking them to tell us in brief about their first day in journalism, where they were, what happened and what they remember or have tried to forget. So starting with Chris Barrett, who's the sports editor of the Sydney Morning Herald. Chris, where did you start? Times, one of the great newspapers, yeah. Uh, I did a couple of years in country Queensland newspapers. I'm trying to think what my first, first day was like. It would have been a house fire or a <laughs> tree or something like that. And did you start as a cadet? or? started as a cadet a year and a half into my university degree. I just you know, got a job offer because I was from that town and um, decided I'd, I'd go down that track and did, did cops and courts and, and cats in trees for, for a couple of years there and, and then a couple more years at Ipswich, same, same part of the world, before I made my way down to... Sydney a few years later, so uh, very, very local sort of grounding there. And were you poached to come down to Sydney or did you come looking for a job? No, I applied to a display ad in the Australian media section actually, which you don't see them too much anymore in the, from the journalism jobs. Sort of came in the back way to the Telegraph as a, as a layout guy on, on, the, on the Telegraph because I, I sort of had those multi-skills from being in, in local papers. I said to David Penberthy, the editor, that I wanted to get into reporting and he said, well, we need a young man on the Sydney Confidential. <laughs> <laughs> um, All the secrets are coming out. So I said, well, look, I can't knock his back, can I? So I did a, I did a year there. So I went to the Arias before I went to the Alan Board. <laughs> wow. And so I presume your Emmy's gown guide will be coming up soon. <laughs> That's right, yeah, yeah. Hanging out the cricket red carpet all the time as well. No, but I, I, I lasted a year doing that, which was good for a sort of 24, 25-year-old who could have the late nights and... The customary couple of years in England where I worked on The Guardian and that's where I sort of moved into sport all full time and after a couple of years there I found my way back to, to Fairfax and, and have been there ever since, about 10 years. Mm. Sherry, your first day would have been at the Sunday Telegraph, am I right? It was at uh, the Sunday and Daily doing work experience and I was, I was just thinking, I don't remember my exact day but I remember the moment I first arrived at News Corp, which is then News Limited, and my mum, who's here in the audience, dropped me off because I was doing work experience at school, so I was year 11, and I just still remember the nerves in my stomach as I walked through the revolving doors for the first time. I was just so scared and, and shy. And from after that week, they asked me to come back during the Sydney Olympics as a copy kit, which is kind of doing the photocopying and, well, as you started as well, and getting the mail and getting food for the editors and journalists and so it, it progressed from there so it's I think that's a really nice way to start in the media because you literally see every level as you're going along the way and see how the whole building works 
And so then it turned into a reporting job at the, both the Telegraphs or at the Sunday Telegraph? Um, the first reporting job was at the Sunday Telegraph. I was a casual and I wrote for the auto section, the car <laughs> section, which, you know, is as different from my personality as I guess doing sitcom would have been for yours. I knew nothing about cars, so it was a very difficult assignment. I did stories like how to feng shui your car and what the colour of your car <laughs> says about you because I literally knew nothing. But they, they needed someone to write for that lift out, which was a very big lift out at the time. Yeah. And then you moved into general news reporting? Yeah, the kind of the cadet roles, like the wedding of the week and the pet of the week at the Sunday Telegraph and the babies and all of that sort of story. So it was a long road until news reporting, yeah. And then Sherry's career took her from news reporting for the Sunday Telegraph, a stint in Canberra, back to Sydney to be Chief of Staff, then to Channel 7. Yes. Where she won a Walkley. Yes. And then to The Australian. Then I was editor of Clio magazine yep. for a year and then The Australian as media editor and senior writer and then back to the Daily Telegraph doing federal politics for the past two years now. So, you know, it's always been said in our careers in journalism that everyone is going to have to work across all media and be a very multimedia person, but you're one of the few who has actually done that. You've worked in magazines, in print, in television. You haven't done radio yet. No, not radio. That'll be next. <laughs> and now you're back with Sky News hosting your own show. As, as well as the paper. Yep. yep. Yeah. Caro, where did you start? On oh, my first day. Yeah. Look, I, I really don't remember the exact first day, but I started in, I was still at university and I was studying law and journalism and I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And my journalism lecturer sort of took it upon herself to get me a job over at the ABC at the now defunct investigative unit. And I worked there for a month for free. And it's all a bit of a blur because I don't really, I didn't know what I was doing, being asked to do this strange sort of micro inquiries. I, I remember one about could guns be concealed in boxes in, for importing, exporting roses? And I was sort of, whoa, it's, <laughs> this is intense, this investigation. I was doing, does the stuff. canteen have ham and cheese <laughs> at that level? <laughs> and then after that just banged on a few doors and did a bit of radio and ended up researching for documentaries and then I was at Four Corners. Sort of happened pretty quickly. Yeah. A bit of a blur. 7.30 report along the way? A 7.30 report yep. along the way too. But I did try and get one of those cadetships at the ABC. There's one one young person selected for every – just one in each state around the country. That's it for the ABC. That's the intake. And I totally flunked. You had to sit a news and current affairs exam and I just flunked it, just massively flunked it. But ended up working at the ABC and have been there. Who been got there the since. cadetship for New South Wales in your year? I think it may have been Sarah Dingle. I th- but I may not be correct there. <laughs> I don't know. Who has been a Walkley finalist, I think. She may have won a Walkley. She, she has, yeah, yeah, many. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, well, good choice, but I'm glad you made it a- as Absolutely. Well. <laughs> Very good choice. <laughs> so Chris is uh, – one of the many reasons that Chris is here tonight, apart from being one of Australia's most accomplished sports journalists and now the sports editor of the Sydney Morning Herald, is that he was on the ground – in South Africa when the Australian cricket team entered its darkest period in the modern age. And Chris broke significant aspects of that story, including that David Warner was a central player in the conspiracy. And that story has had ramifications which are still fully seeing play out. So, Chris, I wanted to ask you about the environment when you're on the road with a sports team like that. I presume there is a great deal of pressure from the other journalists from your editors and from the sporting team itself. You're competing for stories. 
in some ways you might also be keeping things quiet or certainly that's been the case in sports journalism in the past. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? (laughs) Talk to us about that. What, What was the mood on that particular tour in that particular dressing room and where did you fit into the ecosystem of the journalists who were in the group? Yeah, the, I mean, the journalists that cover cricket and, and tour regularly, we are in competition. We are still friends as well as, as they are in the, in the political sphere, I, I imagine. But this was a strange tour. I got there to Durban two days before the first test and, and I was having a quiet beer with one of my colleagues and from the other paper and, and he said, well, the Ashes was just so controversial and, you know, there was so much going on. This is going to be a quiet tour. I'm sure it is. You know, we won't be under that much stress. I said, oh... I don't know about that. I said, I said, these two teams don't like each other very much. I didn't obviously think that someone would use a piece of hardware equipment to rub the wrong side of the ball to get an unfair advantage. But it was such a nasty tour. Like it, from I think the day before the series started, I found out and reported that Australia had quietly asked for the stump microphones to be turned down. Now, that sort of doesn't necessarily mean anything to a lot of people, but obviously there's an implication that, you know, what are you going to be doing when the stump microphones are turned down? And at the time, you know, that was a back page story, but it obviously is shown in greater context by by what happened in later weeks. Fast forward to when it actually occurred and the cheating occurred. It was a strange couple of days afterwards because as happens in these, these sort of things went into lockdown, that there was not a lot of information coming out. There was a heap of pressure from back home to, you know, for daily uh, front page stories, exclusive content. You'd be hanging around the hotel, as you sort of can do if you're a touring reporter, because even the even the players are under such siege and they still sort of respect your job to be hanging around. And, you know, you've got the other reporters to be, you know, sneakily ducking off to the corner trying to talk to someone else. And it, so it was, it was an odd place to be. It's possibly like of covering, you know, a major international incident, I suppose. I don't want to compare it to a, to a tragedy or whatever like that, but in terms of the actual volume of content and, and the demand that was coming from home and, and the competition from on the ground, that's what I can imagine it would be like. And it's, it's the only instance that I've had where I've been you know, wound up in something of that magnitude. I can't remember the exact sequence of events, but at what point did the fans start making unflattering remarks about Dave Warner's wife? And at what point in relation to the ball tampering day was the wearing of masks, that uh, Sonny Bill Williams masks in the ground? So it was the previous test match in Port Elizabeth and there was there had been chatter that they might come in with these with these masks on and a bit of suggestion that that they were having them made. I don't know if the audience necessarily knows, but David Warner's wife had 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 some brief involvement with Sonny Bill Williams, the, the rugby player, many years before the pair met. So David had really turned the country against him really and the whole team in the first test with an altercation with one one of the South African players. So it happened, well, it happened, I reckon, on day two of the, of the second test in Port Elizabeth and I got a message from someone saying there's a photo that's been taken not only of a couple of guys in the ground with Sonny Bill masks on but two South African officials posing with them, which, you know, s- certainly suggested some sort of complicity from the local board or members of the, of the local board in this abuse of, of an Australian team member. And not only had that happened, but they had declined Australia's request to security for these guys to be chucked out or at least the masks to be thrown out. So it happened quite quietly originally. There was only a handful of them. And then by the time it got to the Newlands, the, the third test where the, where the sandpaper issue happened, you know, half the crowd were wearing T-shirts or, or had masks or what have you. It had got out of control. And that's sort of one of the the background things that had was lost in the whole debate they sort of they raced out this this ban against these players and fair enough they they broke the rules of the game and they and they deserve to be penalized heavily but i think 
I think it was forgotten actually some of that context about how much stress particularly Warner was under with his family being abused. And so tell us about the moment when the ball tampering happened. Were you, where were you? Were you sitting in a press box? Were you watching it on a screen or, or both? Yeah, you're watching it on the screen. I thought it was a guitar pick. Actually, not that that would actually helped rough the ball up necessarily, or you maybe you could pick little holes in it. But the first instance was to think that, or the first reaction was to think that the local broadcaster who controlled the television coverage were being parochial because, I mean, they've been shown to be geniuses at the end of the day, but they had spent the previous test honing in on Dave Warner and his and his bandage that he had on his hand. He had a few broken fingers over the last couple of years, so it was heavily bandaged. And they'd focused in as he was using that hand very close to the ball with sort of implications that something dodgy might be going on here, but but never being able to prove anything. So suddenly, you know, there's, there's this piece of what looked like a guitar pick or tape or, or sandpaper that's rubbed on the ball and then straight down Cameron Bancroft's strides and it was it was shock, really, you know. Um, ball tampering's a funny thing in cricket that it's it's happened so often in the past. You know, Michael Atherton had dirt in his pocket. There's been... There's been guys with have to see with the mint, um, but bringing a foreign object, you know, particularly one from Bunnings onto the ground, um, <laughs> and then having been caught on television and and been caught putting it down your pants, I mean, that was just the the brazenness of it all that, that took the cake. Sports teams are famous for freezing out journalists who who report things that they don't like. I was once frozen out by the All Blacks for reporting that they I'd caught them waxing their legs at a uh, <laughs> at a. You got nominated for Walkley for that? <laughs> I didn't. God damn it, I did not. But I got on on page one of the paper. I have I was in Melbourne covering an All Blacks at the World Cup, and I went on a day off to get my eyelashes tinted, and was lying in the the beauty salon when the the girl who was doing the eyelash tinting and as you guys will know, you can't open your eyes while this is happening. So I was, tr- and you can't blink either because the ink will run into your eyeballs. And so I was trying to keep my eyes very calm while she told me that the job that she'd done just before me was to wax the legs of two rugby players. This is in 2005 when that was quite a big deal, particularly in New Zealand. I was working for the New Zealand Herald at the time. Anyway, I reported it and then I wasn't allowed to go to training for about a week after that. Yeah. So anyway, but sporting teams do freeze out journalists who, who report things that they don't like. And one of the cultural changes, I suppose, in sport reporting over the past decade has been that sports teams have had to get used to journalists reporting things that perhaps once upon a time they might have expected that the media would keep a secret. Group sex springs to mind. Do you think, was there an expectation, has there been an expectation in cricket that you would be keeping secrets for the Australian team? No, I think you know, I think people's personal lives are, are off limits. I think that's reasonably well accustomed. And, and But beyond that, I mean, I think if there's rules being broken, if there's, you know, if there's police involved or anything like that, I think, you know, modern-day sports journalists aren't, aren't, you know, sweeping that under the carpet like might have happened decades ago. You know, I think I have a good rela- working relationship with a lot of players, but, you know, I wouldn't call any of them mates. So I think, I mean, everyone's got to be careful about the distance they keep it's never really been an issue for me. I've never really aspired to be a, a friend of a player. You know, I don't mind spending time with them and on long tours, often you'll end up at the dinner table with them, but or sometimes you will, very very infrequently these days. But I have never been, you know, banned from a training session. I've been banned by several players for something I've written, but that's ended up wearing off because I'd like to think that if you're fair and balanced and, and reasonable and accurate, that they're going to um, ultimately realise that, you know, you're just doing your job. And that's been my experience. Sherry, federal politics is another area where it's been the general perception that journalists keep secrets for politicians. 
the story about Barnaby Joyce's impending baby that you broke this year, which which changed the political landscape and resulted in, in a federal bonk ban, which I think is still in place, was a story that nobody else in Canberra had reported up until that stage. And as soon as it was published, the um, airways were flooded with people saying that they knew about it but had chosen not to report it. In the months since that story was broken, how have you thought about that notion in Canberra? How have other journalists in Canberra treated you? And how do you reflect on it now, looking back with a little bit of perspective? I think there were two things. I think there was one that some journalists came out against it and said that it shouldn't have been reported and quite established journalists in the press gallery. But I think it was also the case that a lot of media outlets were chasing it and just hadn't stood the story up because it is a very difficult story to stand up, you know, to in effect prove someone's had an affair and that a paternity was the deputy prime minister like that is a very tricky thing to be 100 percent certain of when no parties are commenting which is you know why it took us so long to publish it and, and we first tried months before in October of 2017 just before the New England by-election so so I think there were two and we ended up with a front page story that kind of went halfway and said that there was a personal crisis in Barnaby Joyce's life that was sending shivers of panic in the Turnbull government so I think it was it was also that it was very difficult to stand up. How did other journalists treat you in the days and weeks and months yeah. after the story was published and how do you reflect on it now with the, with the perspective of, of time? I guess the press gallery can be divisive perhaps more so than than cricket journalists um and there are those who you know strongly felt it shouldn't have been published and came out in defense of Barnaby Joyce and others who supported the decision and then and initially you know there were some media outlets that didn't report on it at all the Herald and the Guardian for the first few days didn't touch the story but then when it became an issue because I broke a few stories when it became about his girlfriend Vicky Campion getting jobs in other national ministers offices that's when the other media kind of came and and reported on it so eventually the entire country was running it on the front page every day for about three weeks so I think that the media industry just took a little while to go hold on how do we deal with this difficult story are we reporting on it is it news is it not but and but ultimately did You've had two stints in Canberra, one as a young reporter and one as a political editor. Do you think in that time the culture in Canberra has changed? You know, do you think that politicians have either of those times or and do now expect journalists to keep their secrets? Do you think they behave in ways in bars and restaurants in Canberra that they wouldn't like the general public to know about? Yeah, when I was there last time it was 2007 to 2009, so I was early 20s, I'm 34 now. So I think the politicians' behaviour was probably worse in the past and even if you speak to journalists who covered Canberra, you know, a decade before that it was definitely worse, whereas now it's that fine line where politicians don't know what is going to get reported on and what isn't and so they're a lot more careful about their behaviour. I think journalists still won't report on affairs. I think this was the case that, you know, a conservative leader had done something deeply hypocritical. He was, you know, standing for family values but had left his wife and four daughters for his media advisor who'd been shuffled around offices and was having a baby. So I think it was kind of a unique circumstance. But I think affairs still wouldn't be reported on now. Politicians definitely are more aware and probably that also coincides with the Me Too movement. They're a lot more careful about having dinner or drinks with female journalists because of the perception 
And they would, you know, they make sure that there's, say, three people there, not just one-on-one in case there was a photograph or, you know, in case it's misinterpreted. Caro, secrets and lies have been a big part of your journalistic oeuvre, exposing the secrets of people who didn't want stories to get out. And in the case of the Kelly Lane Exposed documentary, which took Australia by storm this year, exploring the many lies of a woman called Kelly Lane, who was found guilty of murdering her baby, Tegan Lane. Tegan's body has never been found. And Caro's investigation into Kelly was sparked, I think, by Kelly contacting you. In the first episode, there's a powerful moment where you say to Kelly, you have lied, you have lied and lied and lied. How confident were you at the beginning of the project and how do you feel now about Kelly's capacity to tell the truth and whether she told you the truth during the work on this project? Mm, Good question. Truth and memory, I've realised, are two very tricky and intertwined things, particularly when it comes to Kelly Lane. And... She had a great and deep inability to tell the truth during a time of crisis in her life and continued that when she was caught in the headlights by authorities and was digging herself a deep, deep grave and trying to conceal things still. But then many years later, memory came into play because when I'd ask her questions, when it came to her telling the truth, I think she was telling me the truth to the best of her ability, but her memory's shot. She couldn't remember things that other people could remember that weren't even controversial, that weren't damning of her at all. She just couldn't... She had no memory of them. She had no memory that her first first boyfriend took her down to the wharf and she had to take... when she went off to have her first termination. But then I discovered as we went along and were speaking to other people involved in this incredible, mysterious matter that their memories were shot too. They were remembering things differently. Their statements had changed to police. So... It was sort of wading through mud and in a forest of smoke because so many people had changed their stories over, you know, this in this evolution of time, the tyranny of time, the police call it. The more time that goes on, the more your memory is fading and you're getting new memories and losing proper memories. So it was a really difficult journey to take. And how much do you trust a convicted murderer? Is every convicted murderer going to say they're innocent? Probably, if you ask them. I didn't do it. One thing, though, that I guess unifies often people who are innocent is that they never stop and they never stop bringing, shining the spotlight back on themselves. They just keep going and keep going and keep going and keep going. Many others just give up. They'll say they're innocent for a little while and then give up. But Kelly Lane has kept going with it. And we discovered that parts of her story that the police condemned as a lie, actually there was a ring of truth to it, you know, finding new witnesses But it was a fascinating journey and I still don't know 100% whether she was telling me the truth about some things and other things. Do you think... I I really don't... And honestly, I don't think when we throw Kelly Lane out the window, I think when we're interviewing people in the course of our our work, I don't think people are 100% truthful to us all the time, whether they're a sports person or a politician. There seems to be different grades of truth. It's one of the great sort of truisms that one of the most difficult things about lying is remembering all the lies Mm. and remembering how they fit together. And, in fact, it's when you try and repeat those lies in your first police statement, then second police statement, then the committal hearing and then the trial, that's when you come unstuck and that's when the barristers find you out. What were some of the things that Kelly never wavered from? Well, that there is a baby daddy. There has to be one. And that she's wavered on a lot, I've got to say. The one thing she never wavered from is that she loved these children 
and that she thought she was doing the best by them. That's her ultimate overarching, her mindset is that I didn't do wrong. You know, I had a chance to abort this third child and I didn't do that because I was too far in my pregnancy and I didn't do anything further illegal. I I carried the baby to full term. I thought I was doing the right thing. People don't understand that. I love these children. And I get that. And it's strange. Even almost towards the end of the project, I was still thinking to myself, this woman is freakish. She's freakish in what she did with her life. She's freakish in that she continued to play at this competitive, really sort of violent contact sport when she was nine months pregnant. How could she do this and do this over and over again and tell so many lies? But then after the series aired, we were inundated with women who were writing to us saying, hey, thanks for making this series. I have a story to tell you. I concealed my pregnancies. We had one woman write to us saying she concealed three. And when she was 16, 17 and 18, her parents still don't know. She had all three of them. She did it in secret. She gave them up for adoption and she's never been found out. But she was ashamed and she kept it a secret. There were all different reasons. People contacting us saying, I am the result of a concealed pregnancy. Just, you know, things that you thought were really rare and out there and freakish sort of were seeming, okay, that's not that out there. Wow, look at all these other people's shared experiences. So... To do that, I, well, I, I didn't want to sort of draw attention back to Shari. I just actually could sit and listen to you all for an hour, to be honest. That's why I'm here. I'm sorry, Chris. But I don't know. That's the thing. So irresponsible, so reckless, so bold or so delusional. But do you think there must be a lot of other people lying as well? You know, do you think people actually oh, absolutely did a shit ton. That, that she people was all, Pardon my language. All around her, she's the yolk in an egg. The white around her, she is surrounded by lies. She was surrounded by deception and she was surrounded by people who told her to keep secrets and this is how you do it and taught her to do it. So she's not a mastermind. She's a a product of her own experience and her upbringing too. One of the great challenges I think in journalism is knowing when to continue poking the stick into the hole, you know, and that comes up in every field of journalism, I think. You know, I think a lot of journalists in Canberra don't want to go poking sticks into things that might yield stories that are going to be problematic for them. You know, I think the same with sports journalists. I know a lot of sports journalists who I think have left stories alone in the past, I'm talking about 15, 20 years ago, because it was all a bit too yucky and they didn't know where they might lead them. Carrie, I wonder if in the in the legal system there's a sense among some Australians, and I wonder if you felt this at any point, that a baby is missing, mm. a woman is in jail, should we just leave this alone? Nah. (laughs) Because there is so much still unknown. You know, how can you leave something alone when the majority of it is still a mystery? That's nonsensical to me. I mean, when I first received the letter for I thought from Kelly Lane, I thought that was my immediate reaction. I trust the courts. Yeah. She's been convicted. There was a jury. There must have been the evidence. The police would have gone the whole hog. This was a 10-year investigation, you know. Open and shut that door, that's done. But just even just the first little scrape, little dig, it was, hang on a minute, they didn't get to that person and that person and that person and that person and that person. Hang on, they didn't get those phone records. Why didn't they get those phone records? Hold on, the police said they're not relevant. They are in the relevant time period. And it it just built and built so quickly. Not just the mystery but also the inaction and the things that were done and the things that weren't done. It all just didn't make sense. So her bizarre story was matched by what 
we in a, a team of people who are editorially analysing this was matched by the weirdness and the oddness of this stop-start haphazard investigation and questions about why they didn't do things. But you've got to keep poking the stick or, or shaking the tree until the little piece of fruit or that information comes to light. For us, that's going to be Tegan's body, Tegan walking on planet Earth somewhere, but really the dad, the father. You know, there's so much still unknown. Mm. And, it, and putting all that aside, what we found so fascinating and even me looking back on the series fascinating is that you think you know something. You think you know something about a case. But we didn't and I don't think Australia did about how this was actually run and what was going on in the prosecution as well and with the police. You know, for the homicide detective to say, we didn't charge her, we didn't have enough. We did not have enough to charge her. And then she's charged and then and down she goes. Anyway. Sherry, one of the dominant emotions from coming out of Barnaby Joyce in the wake of the revelation of his pregnancy with Vicky Campion seemed to be a, a sense of outraged injustice, that it was deeply unfair, that all this was happening to him, that people were picking on him and that nobody understood how hard it was to be Barnaby. <laughs> Did you get any appeals from Barnaby to lay off him? Did people close to Barnaby beg you to leave this poor man alone? When I first started looking at it in, as I said, in October last year, then there were national politicians who stopped talking to me at the time and one went on Sky and said she needs to decide if she's going to be a gossip journalist or a political reporter. So I think, it, and in the National Party now, you know, Barnaby's closest supporters won't speak to me, but there was no reach out which was kind of unusual for a story like this. Barnaby didn't reach out to my editor or me or anyone to say, like when it actually came crunch time, when we actually published, to say, don't run or this or go easy, or which is very unusual. Like normally politicians are extremely forward when it comes to complaining uh, to the editor, but, but there was none of that. Why do you think Barnaby passed up all the opportunities he had from a lot of mastheads and a lot of journalists and a lot of television programs saying, we know you're having a baby, why don't you do a lovely sit-down with us, we'll do hair and makeup for Vicky, everything will be lovely, you can talk about how you guys have fallen in love and it'll all be really nice. This is someone who had been described as Australia's greatest retail politician. He understood how this was going to go down. Why do you think he didn't take someone up on that opportunity. He was in denial, I think. I mean, and it was so weird because when he eventually did that interview with Alex Cullen on Channel 7, he said the moment he knew that Vicky was pregnant, he knew that he would be stepping down at some point as Deputy Prime Minister. But that statement is completely at odds with all of his behaviour, unless he was just trying to delay and delay and delay losing his position and power. But even after the revelation came out... He refused to step down for what was like two and a half or three weeks or something. And then eventually I found out that there'd been also a sexual harassment complaint against him. Because when you break a story like this, everybody contacts you with a story about Barnaby Joyce. You know, I've never had so many calls from the public. And yeah, obviously you referred to a similar experience. And so it's just a matter of choosing which ones you chase up. But what had happened with the sexual harassment complaint was that the WA Nats released a public statement saying they no longer had confidence in Barnaby Joyce. And so I started looking into why that was the case and it was that there was a quite a serious sexual harassment complaint against him. I did not name the woman. That came out after my story. I chose not to name her because she didn't... It was a confidential complaint. She didn't 
want her name forward. But it was on publication of that story that eventually the Nationals leadership said to him, you have to step down, you've got to go, it's enough now. He, he wouldn't have. So, so I don't know why he changed his position in, in the interview with Channel 7 to say that he always knew he'd have to go because he, he did. And, and now he's trying to come back. You know, there's, there's talk that he might try and roll Michael McCormack in the next parliamentary fortnight, which is in a week's time. Do you think he might have thought that he might get back together with Natalie and it might all just sort of blow over if he put his head under the doona and pretended it well, wasn't they were, happening? They were talking about a reconciliation before Vicky's pregnancy and then when the pregnancy happened, he thought he was doing the right thing by staying with her to have the baby. But before that, him and Natalie were talking about a reconciliation. So I don't think it was that... I don't know. You'd have to say his his whole mindset in that period was a bit delusional you know even the comments about the child's paternity you know he wasn't operating (laughs) on a normal level I mean maybe a a scandal like this you know hopefully none of us ever go through it but maybe a scandal like this when you're in the middle of it and you're literally on the front page of every paper every single day and on the news is every night you know maybe it's just hard to function logically in that under that pressure I was just yes I was thinking the same when someone's in the eye of the storm are they capable of acting and thinking rationally and making rational, logical decisions. Watching Barnaby Joyce was watching someone and something that was irrational and illogical. Speaking of injustice, Chris, there seems still to be a a massive sense from the cricketers who were banned and from their supporters that they have been hard done by and that more senior people within Cricket Australia knew about what was going on, that it was part of the Australian cricket team's culture and that they either should be exposed or should be removed from their jobs. Some of those people are now starting to leave Cricket Australia by by the sounds of things. Do you think that the death of Philip Hughes and the very public mourning that happened in Australia as a result of that kind of led to a a very febrile atmosphere where this ball tampering episode took on an emotional status that it might not necessarily otherwise have done? Potentially. I I I always think of the backdrop to this was that Australians have this view of themselves that their sportsmen don't cheat. Which is plainly not right. I mean, you know, Cara can tell you about you know Essendon and, and Stephen Dank. You know, I mean, yeah, I was going to say yeah. you two have been referring to you know it's not like it was a few decades ago. <laughs> I mean, th- all that stuff that that was just a matter of a handful of years ago. What was of course, going on yeah, in the I mean, the, and the, and the NFL, and that's you know, the lot, lot of journalists didn't report that. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't think anyone you know had had great inside knowledge on their doping programs until they you know started to slip out, and then people chased them pretty heavily, but. I, I think that was that was the background to it. But, you know, people forget that Australians are just like other people from other countries. You know, they they, they mess up and they make mistakes. It was was ju- it a mistake though? Well, look, there's no evidence that it was systematic before that. I mean, I, I can't I can't say that. I mean, certainly people have their suspicions. As I said earlier, the actual process of ball tampering is one is, is almost like telling a white lie. I mean, you know, it's it's considered it's 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 considered a dumb thing in cricket. I mean, it won't be now because you've got 12 months out and lose six million dollars. But so this was just taking it to the next level and just and just being caught out red-handed. What it was was reflective of a wider rotten culture in Australian cricket where aggression and, and had got out of control and, and arrogance had got out of control and, and that's what you're referring to with, you know, people higher up the food chain bearing some responsibility for it. And and there's a lot of denial involved in this too. I mean I mean Steve Smith came straight out in that press conference and said I can still captain Australia. You know, I'm still the best man for the job. I mean clearly he was in denial and clearly he wasn't thinking rationally. 
and that's the same with the chairman. A couple of weeks ago, he, he lasted, I think, three days after that ethics report came out, still thinking he could hang on to his job. And then all of a sudden, the chairman from New South Wales rang him and said, you know, you've got to go. So it's taken these guys a big look in the mirror to realise that there was something, you know, really wrong with the sport. But, you know, I don't, I don't think anyone you know, knew about the use of sandpaper rubbing on a ball, but it was just reflective of, of wider issues. Everyone I've spoken to who has young sons says, you know, that was the day my sons were, were sobbing uncontrollably when they realised or, or were very upset or very disillusioned when they realised that the Australian cricket team were cheats. Were you a, a little boy who idolised sports stars? And if you were, what's it been like getting closer to them and, and, and realising that they are human and that they're, they're flawed? I liked watching sport. I didn't really idolise them that much. I mean, I was a tennis fan, so maybe, you know, I haven't really covered that much tennis, so... Yes and no. I mean, I kind of got in for the journalism, not not so much the sport. I sort of say it to to young sports journalists, you know, you want to make a decision about what, why you're involved in it. Like, I'm not really there just to watch every ball of every day. In fact, you know, like I'd rather hang out the back talking to people than I shouldn't tell people that. But you know, <laughs> I do watch the sport. But uh, but I I really you know love it for the stories and and you know it's not it's not as life or death as. Kelly Lane or, or as important probably for the shape of the country as Barnaby Joyce but I just like getting to know things telling readers what the real story is so yes I love sport but I kind of like just the story beneath the story you know. Caro, you mentioned studying law at university and, and one of the many compelling moments from your investigation was the 730 report story that you did where you presented to Mark Tedeschi QC or SC, who was the mm. Crown Prosecutor in the case, some stuff which had been essentially left out, which had been overlooked, suggesting really that he had not done his job as well as he could have. You could see how hostile he was and how awkward the moment was. What was it like for you as someone who once upon a time perhaps thought about being a lawyer to be in a room with one of Australia's most esteemed lawyers confronting him with what seemed to be big holes in the way he's done his job? Well, I'm not going to... I was absolutely terrified. <laughs> you hit it very well. Absolutely terrified to interview Mark Tedeschi about a very high-profile case and one that was just so controversial. And it was his second last day in office at the DPP and he was obviously awaiting the decision, the Fullerton decision, about the Gordon Wood malicious prosecution, which obviously Tedeschi wasn't found to have maliciously prosecuted Gordon Wood, but was harshly criticised by Justice Fullerton for his work on that. So there was sort of a lot going on in the room and there was a request from Mr Tedeschi to not include a series of questions and answers from him where he would say no comment or I'm declined to answer that, which was really difficult because in this interview there was a lot of that. There was a lot of him saying I decline to answer that and I won't answer that. And in the end it was... I'm sorry, if you're not answering it, I don't know how we're going to... I have to show that I'm asking you the question, you know. So just sort of had to sit firm in the chair and ask the question and try and get an answer or ask it in a different way. But, no, it was pretty intimidating. But when you're armed with the information that we had and all these other people, this cast of characters that we'd interviewed, we felt, you know, on very sure footing. It wasn't a fishing expedition. It was, no, there are really legitimate questions here that we need to ask you about this matter. And after we left and I was going back through some more documentation and, and we see, and it was in the 7.30 report piece, that there's a document there that we obtained where Mark Tedeschi had rung the then Detective Chief Inspector Dennis Bray towards the end of the trial and communicated to this incredibly senior police officer, 
Mark Tedeschi on the phone. I am so concerned about this massive gap in the information and the searches by police. I'm so concerned at all this stuff that hasn't been done. I think the judge is going to abort the trial. Now, that's the prosecutor on the phone saying that towards the end of this massive murder trial behind the scenes. You know, what is going on here? If the prosecutor is saying that, if he believes that there is a major problem here, the jury didn't hear that. The jury didn't know that. The public didn't know that. Kelly Lane didn't know that. We don't know if the defence knew that either. So I still sort of reel at the, is this how it happens? Is this how trials are run? I'm confused. Sherry, have you found as you've got closer to politics that you've become disillusioned about the way politics and policy balance or, you know, did you expect in your first stint in Canberra that it would be kind of grubby? How have you kind of in your maturing as a journalist in in two stints covering this very well-covered area and breaking a lot of fantastic stories during that time, how have you changed your perceptions of what the reality is of what's going on in politics? It's so difficult to answer because it's hard to remember what I thought of it 10 years ago. But I think this year, I think it. I did a lot of reporting and, and broke the story about the leadership coup against Malcolm Turnbull. And I think that was a, a really big revelation in terms of how... Because when you speak to politicians one-on-one, you know, they really do care about the policies and their ideology. You know, they're very passionate, whether they're from the left or the right, they're very passionate about what they believe in. And so you kind of, one-on-one, you get the sense that they do genuinely really care about whatever they're doing. But then the whole movement behind the coup that was completely ego and personal ambition. That wasn't for any great ideological reason. And the government wasn't doing appallingly. I guess the sense is it could have been doing better, but it wasn't doing appallingly. So I think speaking to the politicians before I wrote that first story and hearing why they were... (laughs) the reasons they were giving for plotting a move against Malcolm Turnbull, that's been a big revelation. But I suppose that revelation would have been the same for the entire public, you know, just maybe I had it first because I was writing it. But I think everyone would have had that experience of going, this was really a strike against Turnbull because they deeply disliked him and, you know, wanted to get ahead in their own careers, That the conservative faction, which ultimately they've ended up in this halfway house where Morrison's kind of continuing the Turnbull agenda in many respects. So it hasn't entirely succeeded, but the Conservatives did get rid of Malcolm Turnbull, who they viewed as poison. So, I remember talking to some party power brokers during one of the many New South Wales politics coups and them saying about the sitting Premier, oh, we've gone off him. And that was the first inkling I had that there was going to be a coup. I didn't certainly didn't break the story, but you know that felt so sort of obscene. And it felt like he was about to be stabbed in the back, you know, in the Roman Forum. It was, it's very visceral, isn't it? Yeah, and it was so bizarre. The day, like how I found out about it was I was, every Thursday, including today, I write my column for Friday's paper. And it's kind of a good reason to just ring a whole lot of cabinet ministers and just have, and other politicians, backbenchers, and just have a chat about how things are going with, you know, whereas on the other days, if you call them, you're chasing a particular story. So I was just calling around and asking, you know, how everything's going and energy policy was big at the time, so asking where that was happening, what their sense was with where the energy was going to head. 
and yeah, to have leadership raised and people telling me that Dutton was considering a strike against Turnbull within weeks. And I almost didn't believe it. And I just went to kind of write it in the middle of my column. And then I went, well, hold on. <laughs> These are kind of senior people saying this. This is a big story, but it was just so difficult to comprehend that they could actually be doing that off the back of energy policy that had almost been negotiated and had got through the party room the week before. So, yeah, I almost kept it in my column, but luckily I walked into my editor's office and said, I've just been told this and this and this. And he went, yeah, that's a front page story. We have to put it on the front. <laughs> but, but we still ran it kind of small on the front. It wasn't the big splash, just because I didn't think it would happen just four days later. Thank you very much to our panel. We've learned a lot about secrets and about lies and about frailty, but also about really great journalism. And these three are outstanding practitioners. So thanks very much to everyone for coming tonight and have a good night. Thank you.